I don't think I'm getting a birthday present. I I am relatively certain that they want to fire me out of a cannon into the sun. Hello and welcome to Ten Cent Takes, the podcast where we cause whiplash from rapid time leaps, one issue at a time. My name is Jessica Frazier, and I'm joined by my co-host, the curious collector, Mike Thompson. Man, my collection has been growing by leaps and bounds lately. And it's curious. (laughs) Yeah. COVID has uh, not been kind in my closet free space. Oh, well, and you recently gave me my first short box, so that's a I thing. I did. So. I'm not sorry? No, don't be. I needed a place for them. I, <laughs> I looked over at my at my bookshelf one day and went, oh, no. <laughs> I have a lot of single issues that are just kind of sitting on a shelf. <laughs> you know you're a collector when you just have the, the random piles of single issues hanging out. I just have random piles of trade paperbacks and just like my counter is literally covered. Not only do I have every one of the Sandman series just like chilling on my counter. I got um, Moon Girl and uh, Devil Dinosaur. Um, Devil, Devil Dinosaur. And yeah. that's just chilling. <laughs> so I've just got all this stuff like all over. Yeah, it's uh, it's insidious. <laughs> it takes over your life one issue at a time. Well, what better way to a tiny house shaped like a pirate ship than with comics. Fair. (laughs) If you haven't listened before, the purpose of our podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. This episode, we are returning to our book club, and we will be looking at volumes five and six of the Sandman series. If you haven't checked out the first couple episodes of the series, I highly recommend you go back and take a listen. It's episodes 15 and 17. Yeah. And we're covering two volumes at a time. Yes, we are. So 15 was one and two and 17 was three and four. So you're joining us for five and six. So welcome aboard. Choo-choo. Welcome to the deep end of the pool, children. You don't get an inner tube and we don't have any water wings. Sorry. There's absolutely no lifeguard on duty. We are not responsible adults at this time. (laughs) (laughs) If you are enjoying our podcast, please go ahead and rate and review on whatever platform you're listening on. If that's an option, it's especially helpful if you can rate us on apple podcasts there's a lot of discoverability or if you have overcast you can always do a star for the episode and that'll push promotion as well or if you're a comic fan and you're liking what we're talking about and you've got some friends who you think would actually enjoy it as well please let them know any little bit helps we really appreciate all of you who are spending your time with us we also want to support other podcasts that we really like in this space So this week's Spotlight is on The Last Comic Shop Podcast. Here's a quick preview of what to expect from their show. If you want us to feature your show, go ahead and drop us a line. In the not-too-distant future, following the rapid succession of World Wars 3 and 4, plus the hidden horrors of secret World War 2, there's not much left 
All that remains is a place where folks get together to read and discuss comic books. Sometimes they laugh, sometimes they argue, but they always record and upload their transmissions. You've found one of those transmissions today. Welcome to The Last Comic Shop. Rate, review and subscribe to our weekly comic book reviews on all the major podcasting platforms at www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. Before we leap into our main, main topic, Mike, what is one cool thing you've read or watched lately? I was on Hoopla the other day and I came across a new series by Jeff Lemire who is the guy who wrote Sweet Tooth, along with a bunch of other excellent stuff. But it's called Gideon Falls, and they have the first five volumes on there. It's a really interesting series. It starts off feeling kind of like a horror supernatural thriller involving a Catholic priest who comes to this town, and he's very quickly wrapped up in nefarious things going on. And it's really creepy. And then there's a B story involving a guy who is in this kind of weird dystopian urban environment far away from the the small town of Gideon Falls. As the story continues, it morphs from being a supernatural horror murder mystery into a bit more science fiction and mad science while still keeping those original vibes. And also there's a lot of personal tragedy involved with the main characters. That's really cool to read too, which I mean, that's what Jeff Lemire does is he writes these things that just, they make you a lot of times feel like you need to watch Schindler's List for a pick me up. They're excellent, but they are brutal at times. So after I read that, I I then proceeded to read through the what if omnibus that they had on Hoopla. (laughs) I needed something a little bit lighter to cleanse my palate. That's very relatable. (laughs) Definitely been in that situation myself. But what about you? Well, I I recently purchased the book Hurting Cats, which is a black and white anthology comic by Sarah Anderson. Like this is the woman who did Hyperbole and a Half, right? Yes. yeah. Yeah. And also the one that I've spoken about before, Fangs. Yeah. The love story between the vampire and the werewolf. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, I listen. You do. You're very good. Probably multiple times because we record and, and then <laughs> edit and re-listen and re-listen. And <laughs> <laughs> this style of comic is definitely way different than the Fangs one. It's more of a simple design, and it's just, it's a really fun time to begin with. I highly recommend her stuff to begin with. So Herding Cats is a part of her Sarah Scribbles collection. And if you've seen some of those strips floating around online, they're pretty cute. Each page of the book is showing like a small, relatable instance about daily life. And it's definitely a mood booster. If you're looking for a different palate cleanser, this is definitely it. It kept me giggling the whole way through. And despite its title, it's definitely not a whole book of cat comics, I promise, because I'm not necessarily a cat person per se. I mean, they're fine, but I'm, I'm not a cat person but you will see some in there. I'm more of a cat person than you are. You truly are. (laughs) You are with your little dog cat. The Duchess, Sprocket von Fatipus. Oh, Oh, goodness. The names we give our pets, I swear. (laughs) I, I think the most fun part about this book, though, is that there's also a section at the back 
and it has advice to young artists and it's complete with comics to go with the advice, which is super cute. Oh, that's awesome. That's really cute. Yeah, that's really sweet. All right. Now on to the meat of our episode. This one's going to be a chonker. Mm. (laughs) Buckle up, everyone. (laughs) So volume five of the Sandman series is titled A Game of You and was published in 1991 and 92. It's composed of issues 32 through 37 of the Sandman series and was written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by Sean McManus, Colleen Duran, Brian Talbot, and Stan Walk. We begin our tale in somewhere called The Land and voices stating they needed to find help and that the land was in great peril and that they were waiting for the person destined to save them. Ultimately, one of the voices states their decision to go find the person that is supposed to save them. Meanwhile, Barbie which was a surprise for me to see her again, is awoken by her neighbor, Wanda. And it's revealed that even though she sleeps, Barbie is unable to dream. And we should note who Barbie and Wanda are, because the last time that we saw them was in the doll's house. Thank you. And Barbie at the time had been married to a yuppie named Ken, who when the dream, the vortex, was that what it was? The dream vortex? Yeah, it was the dream vortex caused by Rose Walker. Yeah, so when the Dream Vortex hit and it started ripping everybody's dreams into one another, there was this weird kind of overlap. Ken and Barbie had some sort of a fight. We don't know exactly what about, but it was basically, I think it was tied to the fact that Ken was, he was an 80s yuppie Wall Street wannabe, and his fantasies involved things that Barbie found kind of detestable. And then Wanda was the, the landlord, right? No, actually, that was a different person. But, oh, was um, it? Wanda, yeah, Wanda's a new person, and she's in the new place that Barbie moves to. Okay, like, I totally read that wrong. I have spent, <laughs> I have spent decades thinking that Wanda was the same person as... Uh, I forget uh, his name now. Uh, yeah. But he was, he was queer in the sense that he was, like, cross-dressing, but not necessarily, like, he wasn't necessarily trans, from my understanding. Yeah, but the other thing is that on the back of the book, I think they sit there and they refer to the drag queen for for this volume, I think. Oh, well, that's just rude. Yeah. That's Uh, just transphobic. Yeah, hold on. Let's let's take a look at this now. (laughs) Well, I am going to yell about the transphobia, so we'll just rev it up now. We'll get started here. Yeah, so it's literally the promo text on the back is, Take an apartment house, add in a drag queen, a lesbian couple, some talking animals, a talking severed head, a confused heroine, and a deadly cuckoo. So I don't think that's on Neil Gaiman. I think that's more DC Comics than anything else. No, I agree. That was whoever was writing the cover scripting. But that is something that, because I read that description, I thought it was the landlord, Hal, from the Mm. doll's house, because Hal was someone who clearly was like tight with Barbie and also had a drag persona. There was a one-off statement about how Hal gave her the address to the landlord for this place where she moved to New York. I missed that. Okay. It's, again, one of those, you know, I'm glad I could catch something that you didn't because it's usually the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> no, but honestly, between that and the uh, the promo text on the back, I thought, that Wanda had moved on from her assigned gender and was now living in her actual identity. But that was clearly not the case. And that was a little confusing to me. But the other thing is that, you know, 
the art style had changed. And so I wasn't sure if it was just a new artist rendering an old character. So that's on me. That's caught me a few times, though, where I'm like, wait, the art's a little bit different. Yeah. Am I like, is this the same character? And I had to kind of suss out who the character was, which is fine. I mean, it was easy enough, but. That's kind of shocking that they sit there and still identify Wanda as a drag queen. Like these days on like the 30th anniversary book. Yeah, that was very disappointing to me. I didn't realize that. And that just. mm. Not great. (laughs) Boo. Neil. That, That one probably wasn't Neil, but the rest of it was. God damn it. I doubt it was. Like, I don't. That reeks of marketing. Well, there are absolutely people who write the the covers. Yeah. And whatever's. Yeah. So Barbie is living once again in an eclectic type living situation, but has moved to New York, like we were saying. Beside Wanda, her neighbors include a lesbian couple named Hazel and Foxglove and a seemingly square bear of a young woman named Thessaly. And a middle-aged man named George, who seems to keep to himself for the most part. Barbie also gets very creative with her makeup for the day, painting a black and white checkerboard onto half of her face. And Wanda has decided that despite their lack of money, they should go shopping and at Tiffany's even. Yeah, I really liked Barbie's makeup because it felt very much like what you see on TikTok these days, which is all optical illusions and, and cool stuff like that. So Neil Gaiman, oddly prescient for the 1990s. He's doing us good right now. Yeah. (laughs) So we quickly cut to the dream realm where dream is talking with Matthew, the Raven and has sent something happening in a far part of the dream realm that there was some sort of transition. We zip back to Barbie and Wanda who are on the subway. A woman approaches them for change and Wanda brushes her off while Barbie throws a couple quarters in her cup. The woman becomes very upset when she sees that she is sharing the subway car with a puppy and starts yelling and panicking saying that she doesn't like dogs. The dogs scare her, and she exits the car at the first available stop, then up the stairs and out of the subway onto the main road, still yelling about not liking dogs. She is immediately face-to-face with what looks like a giant yellow dog with a large mustache that had to be bigger than a bus. (laughs) This thing was huge. Yes. And it didn't even really look like a dog, but that was probably the closest approximation to what you could call it. It's kind of this weird amalgamation between a St. Bernard and a lion. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to say it. But as we learn, we have seen him before in Barbie's very kind of like Alice in Wonderland meets Lord of the Rings dreams that she was having before the events of A Doll's House. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. And we will definitely be talking about those. Yep. <laughs> and the woman upon seeing this huge dog wets herself and then faints. Meanwhile, Wanda and Barbie have made it to their stop and go for breakfast prior to their shopping spree. After being asked about this subject, Barbie explains that she hasn't been able to dream after a weird night back where she used to live. And after that point, things fell apart with her relationship with Ken. She said she stopped communicating with him anymore and they weren't really being intimate. And then Ken found another woman and was like bringing the other woman over, even though Barbie was there. It was super whack. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. Good for her for noping right out of that situation. Yeah, exactly. She didn't deserve that. No. So pan back to giant dog thing. Who is looking super rough? Get it? (sighs) (laughs) 
He's still trying to complete his quest. Even though he's limping along, the police are trying to cordon off the area and Barbie and Wanda are passing along that same way. Barbie recognizes her friend, calls him by name, Martin Tenbones. And as he's trying to make his way towards her, the police fire on him from multiple angles. He falls in a heap to Barbie's feet and tells her that she needs to go back. The land needs her and gives her the porpentine, which appears to be a large pink stone and an ornate fitting on a necklace. Wanda pulls away as Martin dies from his injuries. She gets Barbie home and helps her into her apartment. And Barbie realizes that the necklace was from her dreams. And then her whole room fills with blackbirds who turn white, which was that was a wild thing. Mm-hmm. And outside the door, George seems very interested in the situation and tries to ask Wanda. But she just brushes him off. Right. And it's kind of creepy. Like his demeanor is that he seems like that weird sort of infatuated incel who's uncomfortably interested in one of his neighbors. Yeah. He's like at the door with his head down. And he's like, how's Barbie? Yeah. <laughs> I wish you could see me, everyone, because I'm just like, grr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then he goes and grabs a whole ass raven. And puts it in his mouth and swallows it whole and grinning the whole time and mentions the cuckoo. Yeah. By that point in time, it's not surprising that he is off in a creepy supernatural way. There have been enough weird little hints about him throughout the issue. Yeah. He's just kind of lurking most of the time, which is very strange. Yeah. There's a whole lot of other apartment drama, of course, and Hazel was taken advantage of while drunk. And is now pregnant, but hasn't told her partner Foxglove. She's also pretty naive about how reproduction works in the first place, which is super depressing. Like, she didn't know basic things. It felt like she was written to be unbelievably dumb about this one topic, even though she's in a queer relationship in New York. She works as a chef. And when we're first introduced to her, she seems very no bullshit. Because when we first meet her, it's Wanda trying to get milk for Barbie. And Hazel is like kind of antagonistic towards Wanda. And you're not sure if it's because she's possibly transphobic or if she's just not a morning person. Because they let Wanda come in and grab some milk. And it just seems like they're kind of cranky people who are not thrilled to be woken up in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. But then like later on, she has these moments that are just literally unbelievably naive and i don't think her character was written like she should have been i don't know i i'm curious if when they do an audiobook of this if they ever get around to it how gaiman's gonna rewrite her yeah same because i i just think yeah there was a lot missing from this character it just didn't just didn't feel like you said believable as a character just in all of these different pieces to her yeah so Barbie is still wigging out a bit about her experience and with the birds and everything else and Martin Tenbones, all that stuff, and tries to decompress while watching TV. And she starts drifting in and out of sleep and by extension in and out of the dream realm. Nuala actually does show up again. I know we had said prior that we weren't sure if she does, but she does. Yeah. And Nuala was the fairy who had been given to dream as a gift in volume four. Without her consent, by the way. It was kind of like, surprise, you now serve the Dream Lord. Yeah, you're not coming home with me. Sorry, this is now your problem. Which, I mean, like, admittedly, we all kind of wish that we could do that with our siblings at one point or another. (laughs) 
Well, <laughs> I mean, my sorry. brother doesn't listen to this anymore, so it's fine. <laughs> oh, goodness. So Noala does show up and she tries to warn Barbie that shit is about to get complicated, at which point Barbie does fall asleep and passes into the dream realm. Cut to Creepy George, who is cutting himself open. Mm-hmm. He pulls open his chest, exposing his ribs where a bunch of blackbirds had evidently been waiting, and subsequently fly out of him. The other members of the apartment complex start having weird and awful dreams, and the birds visit each sleeping individually. individual. Thessaly catches the bird trying to harass her, and with a glance, it ignites in her hand, which affects George. This is the first real glimpse of the idea that Thessaly may not be the quiet, innocuous individual that she first seemed to be. And she then goes to see George at his apartment, wielding a kitchen knife. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And the thing is, is that that's actually a really good example of kind of Gaiman doing some misdirection. Because he doesn't drop any hints about her. All you get the idea of is that she's extremely straight-laced and kind of nebbish, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Yeah, and then she just busts out powers. And she's really not featured much before this either, which was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And back in the dream realm, Barbie is having to reacclimate herself to her own dream character as she has only the fleeting memories of the night she spent there. And everybody in the building starts to awaken and the birds disappear. They're all shaken after their nightmares. And one by one, Thessaly visits the apartments of the other residents starting with Hazel and Foxglove, followed by Wanda. Thessaly already knew that Barbie was in trouble, and Wanda used her spare key to get into Barbie's apartment at Thessaly's urging, and Barbie was out cold, still in the dream realm. Thessaly asked Wanda to carry Barbie to George's apartment, since Wanda was quote-unquote the strongest. And then Hazel, who, I'm sorry, is just dumber than a rock, points to Wanda's genitals and says, hey, you have a thingy. Which, firstly, take a step back, Captain Obvious, and secondly, so the fuck what? Yeah, and it goes back to that thing that we were talking about with Hazel, where it's like she is suddenly this very almost childlike person, even though she is a grown-ass adult in a queer relationship mm-hmm. in New York City. Like, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's not great. It feels very clumsy. It sure did. And I think childlike is is probably the best way to put it, because it did feel that way. Like, she was seeing something for the first time, and it's like, girl. It's like, you're pregnant. This isn't the first time you've seen one. (laughs) Like, Seriously. Anyway. Goodness. The party finds George's gross poster-sized picture of Barbie that he has framed up on his wall. Yep. And is informed that Thessaly has killed George and he is in the bathtub. So Wanda's freaked out by all of this, of course. I would also be very freaked out at this. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. Also, we need to we need to go back for a second. And it's not that go back. George is dead and in the bathtub. It's, oh no, George is in the bathtub. And they go, oh, is he taking a shower? It's weird that he's taking a shower at 2 a.m. And she's like, no, 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 I killed him and his body is in the bathtub. And that's when the freaking out happens. Yeah. I thought that was great. I loved it. <laughs> I did too. Because Thessaly left the door open to George's house and everyone's like, George, hello. Yeah, no. they. <laughs> like, oh. 
of course, Wanda's freaked out. And she says that she's going to leave and she physically cannot, as if by magic. Thessaly also says that she is going to get George to talk and starts the disgusting process of doing so. She has to remove his eyes, his face, skin, and his tongue. This she actually bit out, which was fucking wild as fuck. Yeah, after it looks like she's kissing his skinless face. Ugh, yeah, that was horrifying. And nails these to the wall. And then tells George that it's time to come back. And horrifyingly, he does come back. And words start coming from the face nailed to the wall. And it's gross. (laughs) So Thessaly starts to interrogate him about his plans, and he begins to tell the group about the cuckoo. Wanda is disgusted and runs to the bathroom where she vomits, and the rest of the group seemingly is surprisingly calm about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would be, personally. So Thessaly, who is now out for revenge against the cuckoo for, you know, trying to fuck with her in her sleep, states that she needs some menstrual blood and asks Foxglove. And when she asks why she has to, Thessaly reveals that she has not menstruated in a long time and that Hazel is pregnant, which they definitely do not have time to deal with at the moment. But Foxglove is obviously shocked and upset by the news. And Wanda is told that she can't go on to the next part of their journey because she needs to watch Barbie. But there seems to be an underlying reason. After conversing with a being that seemed to be made of light, stating that she needs to seek entry into the dream realm. Oh, so it's actually, um, it's the threefold goddess who, the fates basically, who keep on showing up throughout. Oh. So it's, it's that mother maiden crone who normally when we see them, it's their different faces, but they're all kind of part of the same amorphous black shape. So depending on the artist, it's like one being, but with like, you know, the three different identities at the same time. Yeah. But it's also the moon. Yeah. And I didn't get that it was those three again. So thank you for. That's something I caught like on my second or third read through. Okay. Well, I feel better about it then. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a fleeting moment. They only show up for like a page, maybe. Yeah. Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Meanwhile, on the street, our friend, the I don't like dogs lady is pointing out to a passerby that the moon is acting strange, that it had disappeared from the sky. He states that it must be an eclipse, but she says that it just left. It was not like it gradually blacked out like a normal eclipse. So Wanda watches as the three women walk into the light and disappear out of the room, and the moon reappears in the sky for our friend on the street. Wanda starts questioning her womanhood because she vomited during the interrogation. That somehow is, makes her less of a woman. Uh, but I would argue that I would do the same. <laughs> that whole situation was so gnarly. Yeah, it's very pagan ritually. It feels like old school, kind of like druidic. I, I'm sure that someone's going to get mad at me for saying this, but it's very pagan occultism. I don't know the rituals, but it, it feels like a lot of those things that you read about in fantasy novels that are set in like Arthurian times. Totally. So the head then starts talking to Wanda. Back in the dream realm, Barbie and company are making their way to their destination and have some near misses and find some other dead friends along the way. The land has suffered since she has been gone. They talk about the cuckoo and how the bird lays its eggs in the nests of others and once hatched, the young cuckoos push out the other eggs or young of the bird who initially built the nest. Noel also fesses up to Morpheus about having warned Barbie, but he agrees that she did the right thing. Princess Barbara and party get to their destination, the sea, and send Luz the parrot to get help. 
Yeah, and at this point, there's only one other companion left who's like a... Is it like an aardvark? Or an anteater? I think it's a rat. Oh, is it? Okay. Some sort of it's rodent. It's a rat. It's like a... Yeah, it's some rodent where it like... In a trench coat. A, a reporter. Yeah, it yeah. looks like a reporter or a, a PI. Yeah, and as their journey has been going on, it's kind of like the group of friends in the horror movie who are slowly getting picked off one by one. And the one that always gets me is the monkey, and I can't remember his name, but he would scout ahead, and then he didn't come back, and Barbie at one point asks if they think that he's okay, and one of them just goes, no, and then they go and find his body, and it's like, hmm. Yeah, that was really sad. And back at the apartment, this was a very whiplashy one, where it's very back and forth. Yeah. Uh, Back at the apartment, Barbie is talking to George's face. And she asks him why she was left behind. He says it's because she's a man, stating that the moon magic that was used can only be used by biological women. Which, yikes. No, 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 no. I don't, I don't like that one bit. And George also offhandedly states that they should be concerned about the weather. So, back in the dream realm, Luz has betrayed Barbie and brings armed guards to their hiding place on the cliff, and they also kill the last remaining member of the party. So Barbie is dragged away by the guards, and then is paraded through the town into a small pink house. Which is the house that she grew up in. It is, yeah. It turns out to be a replica of her childhood home. She is also confronted by someone who appears to be her as a child, which is strange. Child Barbie starts explaining that she had basically possessed her dreams and was taking over. Barbie becomes more and more visibly weak from being in the house and around the young doppelganger. And young Barbie leaves the house with her entourage of large, dark-clad guards. While dragging older Barbie with her. Yeah. So back in New York, things have started to get wild. Uh, A hurricane that had just left turned around and heads back into town. The women walk a path of moonlight to the dream realm, where Thessaly fesses up that she's been around a pretty long time and starts in on her plan for revenge. I would not want to cross this lady. It did not take much for her to get pissed off enough to want to kill people. I mean, I found it pretty relatable. (laughs) So they run across one of Barbie's failed companions, who tells them that the cuckoo took Barbie. Well, they come across the body, and then Thessaly Mm -hmm. resurrects him in a similar manner that she did to George. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how they're able to get him to talk. So during the walk, Foxglove and Hazel discuss their future, and Foxglove decides to raise the child as theirs, and they make up in a sense. In New York, the storm is raging. George is making terrible transphobic jokes from the wall. And the woman outside has been caught in the storm. So Wanda helps a woman get inside out of the storm. In the dream realm, young Barbie is enacting a plan and has gone out to the most ancient point of the land, the Hierogram. Thessaly and her two companions start making their way over, but are met by young Barbie who points them over to the threat, quote unquote, stating that Luz is the cuckoo. And Luz is a parrot, I might add. So the fact that she's saying the parrot did it, is actually kind of a good assumption to make as a cuckoo. Thessaly goes over, confirms with the bird that she is in fact the cuckoo, and strangles her and snaps her neck. 
when Hazel asks why she did it, she says that the bird had to be taught a lesson. The lesson was that you don't get a second chance, which, yikes. Yeah, Thessaly is uh, the epitome of don't fuck around. Yeah, Lou's found out. Then young Barbie explains to Barbie and the others that the time has come to do what she had been brought here for. Back in New York, our I-don't-like-dogs friend is named Maisie, and she is rightfully creeped out by George's face on the wall, citing bad vibes, which agreed. (laughs) More transphobic questions and some stories from Maisie about another trans family member she had. It was just bad news bears. Barbie does as she is told by young Barbie, back in the dream realm, and slams the porpentine into the large stone hierogram. And there's a great explosion, at which point it's revealed that young Barbie is actually the cuckoo and that her goal the whole time had been to get Barbie to destroy the porpentine and the hierogram. And then the cuckoo wouldn't be held in the land any longer, breaking the spell, and the land would subsequently be destroyed. So the necklace also disappears right off of Barbie's sleeping chest back in New York. Morpheus appears and states that he created the land and puts Barbie back in control of her own mind as she had been bewitched by the cuckoo. And all of the characters of the land start filing past, ending with one dark-haired and scarred woman in white who clearly had history with Dream, like every other fucking woman in here. So Thessaly tries to claim the life of the cuckoo, but Dream is like, nope, and states that he's displeased that she's caused some major shit. Yeah, he was, if I remember right, Dream was upset that she had trespassed into the Dream Realm without his permission. Correct. Yeah. And it's also implied that her getting the goddess to grant her and Foxglove and Hazel passage to the Dream Realm resulted in the hurricane. Oh, no, that was absolutely implied. Yeah. Yeah. The implication was that if you pull the moon out of the sky, you're going to fuck with the the tides. Yeah. 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 So we turn again to New York, where that storm is even fiercer than before. And then there is an explosion of weather from outside, and the world starts turning. In the dream realm, Dream states that he owes Barbie a boon, and also reveals that Rose Walker, from our Doll's House volume, had partially caused this mess during that fateful night of converging dreams. Barbie asks that she and the other three women get back safe and sound, and they are sent back. And we end volume five with a funeral. Wanda's funeral. Barbie was pulled from the wreckage and was able to recover, but Wanda and Maisie did not make it. The funeral was similarly depressing, and not just because Wanda had passed away, but because they were using Wanda's dead name, and it cut her hair and had put her in men's clothing, and she was buried by her family who clearly had no idea who she really was, nor cared to listen to find out. And even the headstone had her dead name listed, so Barbie took out a bright shade of lipstick and wrote Wanda on the headstone. Barbie dreams that she sees Wanda with a smiling, pale woman wearing black, and she finally seems happy. Do we ever find out where the funeral is being held? It's just, it's implied that it's vaguely South Midwest. She had to travel for it. Yeah. And it did kind of seem in the South. I, I don't know that we got an exact location. Yeah, it, 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 it was somewhere very God-fearing and intolerant of people that are the least bit different. Yeah. Well, what were your overall impressions of this story? And who were your favorite and least favorite characters or events of the fifth volume? Uh, you know, 
This volume is a really, it's an interesting change of pace because up until now, we'd gotten stories where even if Dream wasn't the main character, he played a really prominent role in the narrative, even if he was sitting in the background. And this time around, he really doesn't show up a lot. And, and when he does, it's kind of just to bookend the story. It's funny because whenever I talk about something that Neil Gaiman wrote and I'm like, oh, it's not my favorite thing by him. It's still better than 95% of things that I've read. This is not one of my favorite Sandman stories. Part of it is just because it, it does provide that, that whiplash that you get where we're pivoting back and forth between the Dream Realm and New York. And there is a clumsiness to, to a lot of the characters. Like, we've already talked about Hazel. Um, I feel like Neil Gaiman was trying to provide a narrative where someone who is trans is human because he has several scenes with Wanda where Wanda talks about and is very adamant that she is a woman. And the, the story, the narrative doesn't judge or mock her for that. But as you said, George is gross and transphobic, which makes sense. And Maisie, the, the homeless lady, is kinder. But, you know, there, there is still that, that moment of, are you a man or a woman? And then she relates the story about her grandson. It's not explained if he was just very effeminately gay or if he was trans. Um, but she sounds like she was supportive of him. But then he got killed during some sort of hotel hookup, which, I mean, that was a real risk with gay culture. Like, you know, especially during that time. I think it's one of the clumsier stories of the overall Sandman series. I don't think it's bad, but viewed through a 2021 lens, I think it could stand some revision. I don't know. I, my, my opinion is pretty much, <laughs> my opinion, I think, has the least value in, in any conversation about gender identity because I'm a cis white guy. Back on track. Uh, da, 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 da. You know, I, I did actually really enjoy how we got to see some of the characters from the Doll's House return, especially Barbie. It's really frustrating that I kept on thinking that we had seen Wanda in the Doll's House, and it turns out that that was some misleading copy that kind of made me think that. <laughs> like, oh, oh, sorry. I liked how we got to see more of a strange fairy tale of a dream from that book and how it was spun out into a larger story that had a bunch of twists and turns. I don't know if I had a least favorite character, honestly. Like, yeah, the cuckoo is a hateful character, but I also thought it was kind of interesting that, that she was trying to kill Barbie so that she could exist. And then I don't think the cuckoo shows up again. I think the cuckoo just like bounces after this when she flies off. Mm. I, for some reason, like I remember when I thought the cuckoo was going to come back and be an even bigger, badder, nastier villain, but I don't think that happens. I could be wrong. It's been a while, but I don't think it does. I thought Thessaly was a really great character. Like we already talked about how the way that they actually reveal that there's a lot more to her character and also how she is just straight out of fucks all the way through the story. And then I guess, I guess my least favorite character is Hazel's character. And it's not because of anything that was really wrong with her role in the story. It was just, she was very clumsily written. Yeah. Like I said, I think she just comes across as dumb at the most convenient and unbelievable times. It's just, it's too coincidental where at one point she's asking about like, oh, well, don't you have to kill a rabbit to like, what, what was it like she was asking about like to perform an abortion or 
No, to to see. Or, oh no, pregnancy pregnant, test. But... Yeah. Yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> okay, whatever. The actual most ridiculous thing I know. I don't know. I'm like. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Like, I feel like I might be reading too much into this just with my own thoughts, but. Oh, no, I was I was pretty disappointed in how this whole thing was written. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I was disappointed in the transphobia. Let's start there. <laughs> yeah, it, it just felt like the entire volume. It, it may have been done with the intention of bringing to light some of the challenges that trans women face, like dead naming or of constantly being told that genitalia is what makes one a woman. Mm-hmm. or the idea that to do trans correctly, you need to get surgery or the blatant violence against trans people. But I don't think enough was done to highlight someone doing the right thing and giving an example of allowing someone to just live their life genuinely. And Barbie's a good example of a somewhat decent advocate, but I wish that the lesbians in the building had done more to be open or even just not completely stupid about the situation. It just felt really turfy. Yeah. Which, you know, to to explain for any of you who don't know what TERF is, it's trans-exclusionary radical feminist, which is just a way to say you don't want trans women in your fucking woman club for some fucking odd reason. Yeah, and I mean, back in 1991 when this was written, that wasn't really a thing. Like, gender queerness wasn't really a known thing. It was you were a transsexual. Yeah. Like, did you ever see the movie Soap Dish? With Sally no, Field and Whoopi Goldberg and Elizabeth Shue and Kevin Klein. No. It's a really funny movie up until the last 10 minutes uh, where it's, it's about the cast of a soap opera and how the behind the scenes stuff is even more ridiculous than what's going on in the soap opera. It's great. But then the last 10 minutes or so, it's revealed that the villain who's been pulling everyone's puppet strings She's publicly humiliated by being outed on live television as a trans woman. And that's the punchline. In 1991, this was considered wildly funny. And this is an example of how our views have changed in the past 30 years. Yeah. For the better, where we can look at this and say, this is, this is not great. Yeah. I mean, it's still happening, though, and that's... It's still a very real problem within the, you know, the LGBTQI plus community. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's just, in the end, I I feel like there were no lessons learned by the people who had been the most transphobic. Yeah, I mean, because George, we knew was going to be terrible. And then Hazel and Foxglove, there was no resolution on that because by the time that they get back, Wanda is dead. Yeah, yep. And which... That also felt refrigeratory. Like mm. you're gonna kill off the one trans person. Like okay. Yeah, and there's the the happy ending of we see Wanda perfect and in this amazing dress with death waving goodbye to say farewell to Barbie, which is it's. I mean, it's. But she. But my problem with that is she looks a little bit different. Like she looks more feminine and she looks yeah. more, and it's just like that's not necessarily what. And, and I mean, I'm not trans, so I can't speak to this experience. But to me, ha- having known people and talked to their experience, that's not necessarily what they want. They don't want to be a totally different person. They just want to be them genuinely. Yeah. I mean, I certainly can't speak for people who are trans or gender fluid or, or anything in that realm. Like that is well outside my wheelhouse. I can just say, I agree with you. It feels icky. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, since no real lessons were learned, I mean, maybe that's the real message that people don't fucking learn. And if so, 
thank you. That's goddamn depressing. Yeah. The one nice moment was when Barbie wrote Wanda's name on her tombstone in the bright lipstick. That was nice because, you know, it was loud and it was flamboyant and it was very much everything about Wanda's personality. But it was really dissatisfying as an ending. Yeah. 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 I agree. Did you have a favorite art moment in this volume? I'm not sure that I had a favorite art moment, but I was really affected every time one of Barbie's friends died or or she found their bodies. Like it, it genuinely made me sad. You know, I've already talked about how when they found Pernato, the monkey's corpse, and how that was really sad. But Martin Tenbones and his expression right before the cops shot him because he just looked it it was that look of oh, I found my friend and I've got the message, but like, just, it, uh, it reminded me of the time that I'd take my dog into the vet to put him down. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, it's, it's that moment where you, uh, when you're holding the dog and it's like, oh, everything's okay. And then they give him the shot and he gives you this look and it just fucking rips you apart every time. So not really, uh, not really a favorite moment, but definitely an affecting one. Ooh, you're trying to get me going too. Yeah. Um. I don't know. What about you? Well, I really enjoyed how they did the color and line work in the moon scenes. Yeah, those were cool. Yeah, it was neat to see how they used the negative space and implied shapes using lines. And it also made me feel like I was a part of the scene. It was almost like I had to shield my own eyes from the full white pages. Yeah, that was that was neat. Yeah. Any final thoughts about this volume before we move on? Like I said, it's not really my favorite. Um, I keep thinking about Hazel and Foxglove, and it's interesting because like Foxglove was the girlfriend of the woman who put out her own eyes with the forks or the, the skewers in the diner. Yeah, you know? yeah. I figured you were going to bring that up. I was, I was like, how can I condense this? Yeah. Crazy story. <laughs> yeah. And so that, like, that was kind of a neat throwback because I remember Foxglove is like a very, it's like a, a throwaway name or something like that. And then I think her name is Julie, shows up in the jacket that she was wearing and her eyes are not visible during the nightmares when everyone's being plagued by the, the cuckoo's minions. And I will say that moment where Hazel and Foxglove are first in the dreaming and, and Foxglove is sitting there and basically screaming at Hazel about getting pregnant. And it feels like it's going to get real ugly. And she's like, when we get back, I'm going to call you all sorts of names and tell you how dumb you are. And do you know how much it's going to cost for us to raise a baby? And she's like, we're going to have to buy one of those stupid expensive books to name the kid. And I was like, okay. And then they're holding hands by the end of that page. And it's, it's sweet. That story continues actually in a couple of mini series about death. No, okay. That, that Gaiman wrote. And they're really good. They've got their own sense of tragedy and everything, but they're, they're solid. I don't know. It's not my favorite, but it does a lot of things that are really interesting. And I also think that it leads to some really cool stuff down the road. Yeah. Let's move on to volume six. Okay. Titled Fables and Reflections. This was originally published in single magazine form as the Sandman 29 through 31, 38 through 40, 50, Sandman Special 1, and Vertigo Preview 1 between 1991 and 1993. So very much a true compilation. Written by Neil Gaiman, illustrated by Brian Talbot, Stan Wolf, P. Craig Russell, Sean McManus, John Watkiss, Jill Thompson, Duncan Eagleson, and Kent Williams. 
And this was very much a, an anthology of a bunch of different stories that didn't necessarily tie together as a, an overarching plot like the previous volume did. Yeah, it's very much like Dream Country, just with about double the content. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The first story is Fear of Falling, the musical theater writer and director who is wanting to give up right before his show opened. While sleeping, he is visited by Morpheus, who ends up inspiring him to take the leap of courage it took to finish his project to completion. Next up was Distant Mirrors, Three Septembers, and a January, the story of the Emperor of the United States. Here's the scene, San Francisco, 1859. Dream is drawn into a contest with his siblings, desire, despair, and delirium to see who could push a man to his death each trying different tactics to try to lure him into one of those emotions. When Morpheus entered the scene, he basically just gave the man his exact dream. He wanted to be king, and Morpheus stated that he was the emperor of the USA. He starts making proclamations about his claim to the throne, and starts gaining popularity and the charity of the town around him. And he actually becomes famous for being the emperor and is even sought after by tourists visiting San Francisco. He is called crazy at times, but does not fall prey to madness. Desire is unable to tempt him as he already has everything he dreams of. And despair was never in the picture after his dreams came true. He was truly content, and Dream had won the contest. Death swoops in, looking stylish as ever, and leads him away. Yeah, and Emperor Norton is actually someone who really existed in San Francisco. Like, he's a part of our local history, and... I didn't know that! Yeah, no, he's Emperor Joshua Norton, the imaginary emperor. He's a really cool part of San Francisco lore, and I highly recommend reading up on him if you ever get the chance. He's one of my favorite stories about the city that I grew up in. Oh, I'm definitely going to look into that now, because, I mean, I live just a stone's throw away and i can't believe i've never heard that before yeah the next story is distant mirrors thermidor set in england in 1794 with morpheus just swooping into the home of johanna constantine and i'm sure that name sounds familiar in the middle of the night and i'm not gonna lie it was really creepy when he was just like nah boo all your people are asleep just you and i sugar (laughs) (laughs) i was like big nope (laughs) Yeah. And then he's like, hey, I have this super dangerous mission. You in? She's all, but what's in it for me? And apparently she just believes in vague promises and agrees to help with him and with his family matter that he needs a mortal to intercede in. And it turns out that it is post the French Revolution. The reign of terror is in full swing. And Johanna gets caught sneaking through the town late at night with a decapitated head in a bag. You know, casual. Who hasn't been out on a Saturday night with a human head in their satchel? Come on. <laughs> Missed you out kind of late. God, what you got in that bag? Nothing you'd be interested in. <laughs> <laughs> so she ultimately gets picked up by the law, sans head, and is kept as a prisoner under further threat if she does not tell them where the head is. This whole thing about like her spreading superstitions or some bullshit. Yeah, because Robespierre was all about reason and eliminating superstition and religion, if I remember my high school history right. You, you are correct. It's that whole logic piece, which he was just going off about. So she dreams a little dream and visits Morpheus and reveals that the head is Morpheus' son, Orpheus. So Johanna basically says, this is your fight, but I'm in the ring. 
a little help over here? Cue the extra creep factor where the law rightfully figures out that she probably hid the head with all the other heads and go tell her to fetch the one they are looking for. Johanna gets the head, props it up, covers her ears, and tells Orpheus to sing. It drives them mad, puts them in a trance, unclear. But she is able to get away and get Orpheus to a little island paradise where he has previously been. We also come to find out that Morpheus is quite the absentee parent. It was so sad. There was this part where Orpheus asks Johanna, basically, does this mean he cares about me? And she's like, don't know. Yeah, it's uh, anyone that's grown up with with strained relationships to their parents like can just feel that gut punch. Yeah. The fourth story is Convergence, The Hunt. So we find ourselves this time in a story within a story. A grandfather tells his begrudging granddaughter a tale about a man named Vasily, who becomes obsessed with finding a duke's daughter based on a miniature painting that was given to him by a Romani peddler. As he goes off in search of this woman he has never met, he first encounters the Romani peddler that had given him the miniature. She is dead on the forest path, and he just swoops her bag of items and moves off through the forest. He meets several characters along the way, including Baba Yaga and a tall, slender librarian each particularly interested in one of the stolen items he was peddling. One night while hunting a deer, his target is taken out by a woman of the forest, who factors into the story a little bit later. Upon reaching the Duke's mansion, he is led to a dungeon to rot, but is saved by the tall librarian who really, really, really wanted that book. Because it turns out the book is Mm -hmm. from the dream realm, and Morpheus would be very, very displeased should it not be returned. We've met the librarian before in passing. He's Lucian, the librarian of the Dream Realm. Like, he's the first one that Morpheus basically reintroduces himself to once he gets back to the Dream Realm. That's right. In Preludes and Nocturnes. But, like, he doesn't show up a lot. It's one of those things where he's kind of like a central figure to the Dreaming, but he doesn't show up a lot in the stories. I don't remember. I think he may have appeared in passing in Season of the Mists. I can't remember. But, I, like, anyway, sorry, his name is Lucian. Like, that's that's all I was trying to. Sorry. <laughs> So in exchange for the book, Morpheus takes Vasily to the woman's room. But when he gets there, Vasily simply looks at her and gives her the necklace back, saying this belongs to you. Later on in his life, he runs back into the woman who took down the deer, while they are both in wolf form. And at the end of the story, the granddaughter assumes that her grandfather has made up the story to assuage her from dating her current boyfriend. But an ending comment lets the reader know that the story may have some truth after all. That was one of my favorite closing moments. I, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it was sweet. So our next tale, Distant Mirrors, August, focuses on Julius Caesar's next of kin, Augustus, who, after a dream, decides that he must live one day in the life of a beggar. So he calls upon an actor who happens to be a little person to assist him in getting into the role for the day and show him the ropes. They start by making artificial boils on their faces and arms. They dress in rags and take to the streets. In a dream, he was approached by Morpheus, who knew about his troubled past, being brutalized by the man he looked up to, the man a whole empire looked up to. There was also this whole situation with there being two different futures. Augustus had read the prophecies, edited some, destroyed others, so that that Overall, people wouldn't know what was truly predicted, and so that he could make his own course of choosing. 
By being a beggar one day a year, he was not being watched by Julius and the other gods, and therefore could plan without them watching. After Augustus's death, the actor who had accompanied him that day wrote the story of his day with the emperor. However, the harsh details of Augustus's life remained a mystery that he himself took to his grave. Next up, we once again go back in time with Convergence, Soft Places. If you don't have Whiplash yet, just wait. You will get it by the end of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) But this time, we go to see Marco Polo, who is lost in the desert and having the most odd dream. He runs into a person who says his cellmate is named Marco Polo. And they then run into our buddy Fiddler's Green, or Gilbert, who we saw in the doll's house who tries to impart a lesson on Marco Polo. Marco thinks that he is going to be stuck in the dreaming, but when he emerges, he is back with his father and was only a few hundred feet away from the party. Upon waking, Marco forgets the dream he was just a part of. The seventh story is The Song of Orpheus. We again meet Orpheus. This time, his head is still firmly attached to his neck, and he is going to be married that day. His friend, Aristeus, is also at the wedding, along with Morpheus and all of Morpheus's siblings. The bride reminds Aristeus of his long-dead wife, and during the wedding, he requests a private meeting with Eurydice, feigning a need for assistance. He states his intention to rape her and goes to grab her, but she knees him and runs off, where she steps on and is bitten by a poisonous snake and dies right there. Orpheus realizes that she is no longer around and panics, asking if something has happened to her. Grieving the loss of his bride, Orpheus seeks help from first from his father, then his aunt, Death, demanding that she bring her back. Death states that she cannot, that Eurydice is in the underworld now, and that he is unable to go and come back as he is immortal. After more prompting, she does state that she is able to just not collect him, basically, and he would survive coming back from the underworld. But she also tells him that this is not what he wants and that he should go home. Orpheus, however, does the exact opposite and begins his journey to the gate death had described. So he makes his way to the underworld, where he's ferried across the river Styx, and makes his way past Cerberus, the three-headed dog, and through the endless amount of people in the underworld. He gets to Hades and Persephone, who ask him for a song, and he asks for his wife back and plays a haunting melody that brings the underworld to a halt. Hades states that he can have his wife back, but that she will follow him as a shadow up and out of the underworld. The one rule was that he could not look behind him before he reached the exit of the underworld or she would go back down. He made it almost all of the way there, but started doubting, thinking that he was the butt of Hades' joke. But when he turned around, he saw Eurydice just before she was dragged back into the underworld. Orpheus broke the surface alone and screamed understanding that he had just botched his only chance to have his bride back. Time lapse. Orpheus is many years older and living in solitude. He is visited by his mother, Calliope, who had a falling out with Morpheus after he would not assist Orpheus with his quest to bring back Eurydice. He is not interested in talking with her, but she warns him that the Bacanti are on their way and that he should leave as soon as possible. So she disappears, and soon after, the forest breaks out and cries. A crowd of naked women, covered in wine and blood, are running right towards him and ask that he take part in their rituals of sex, wine, and eating raw flesh. He states that he cannot participate, as his heart belongs to someone else, and they basically say, yeah, we weren't asking. 
and they literally rip him apart and eventually decapitate him, sending his head flying into a river. He, of course, can't die, so he's just stuck literally rolling on a river. Yeah, it's very much the stories that Orpheus is known for. Everybody knows him from the story of him and Eurydice, but surprise, there is actually a major part of Greek mythology where he gets ripped apart by Bacchus's insane followers. And yeah, they, uh, <laughs> they're like, fine, you don't want to take part in the ritual. We're going to turn you into one of the ritual supplies and just eat you. Yeah, pretty much. So Orpheus the head washes ashore and Morpheus comes to see him. He wants to say goodbye, has arranged for Orpheus to be taken care of, but says that he'll never see Orpheus again. His life is his own. Next is Convergence, the Parliament of Rooks. We visit Daniel and Hippolyta again. She puts Daniel down to nap, and he wanders into the dream realm, where he goes to the House of Secrets and is with Matthew, Eve, and Abel. Eve tells the story of Adam's three wives, and Abel, after Cain interrupts, of course tells a very optimistic and happy version of their story where everybody got along after all and after all was said and done. <laughs> Hippolyta has no idea that Daniel has gone anywhere while he was napping. We keep getting hints dropped about Daniel and it's going to play out in a very big way later on. Ooh. But yeah. I'm excited. So our last story, Distant Mirrors, Ramadan, is about the king of Baghdad who has everything anyone could want ruling over a prosperous city. However, something still feels wrong to him. So he goes down into the secret depths of the palace where numerous wonders were kept. He procures a ball which holds multitudes of basically like bad vibe entities. He summons Morpheus, stating that he would break the ball, therefore releasing all the bad vibes, if Morpheus didn't appear. And when he actually follows through and drops the ball, Morpheus catches it, takes it, and asks, Why have you summoned me and what the fuck do you want? The king wanted to trade control of his city in order to ensure that it was going to last forever. Morpheus agreed, but in true Morpheus fashion, he put the city in a jar and left the man to be the king of a city in shambles. So Mike, overall impressions of this story? Favorite characters or events? <laughs> Yeah, like I said, this one is a lot like Dream Country, and there's one more volume later on where we get the one-shot stories to provide us with breathers from the overall narrative. They were printed as they were in, in various orders, but then DC collected them into the different volumes in ways that makes more sense. But it's interesting because in this case, we got a collection of stories without another prolonged round of like soul-crushing horror and dark fantasy. I think the anthology volumes actually do a lot to move Sandman from the realm of horror and more into the realm of fantasy because a lot of the times the individual stories aren't as dark or as as brutal. Like a lot of times they're a little bit more philosophical or meditative, but but I like them a lot. But I mean, I only own two issues of Sandman, like individual. And one of them is issue number 8, which is the first appearance of death, and the other one is issue 31 which is the one that features three Septembers in a January, the story about Emperor Norton. I love that story about Norton. I think that one's great. We already talked about how he was a real person, and he is this really interesting character out of history who is both the epitome of kind of the magic of a dream and also what you can achieve even when you're faced with a ton of tragedy because he was actually almost, I think he was basically completely wiped out due to a bad rice shipment, and he did die penniless 
And at the same time, San Francisco fucking loved him. Like they kept standing box tickets for him at, at the symphony on opening night. He was arrested once by an officer and the judge actually did immediately dismiss him when he was brought before him and basically said like, as emperor, he has never declared war. He's never tried to invade anyone. He hasn't done terrible things. Other emperors should be like him. And I loved how Desire tried to tempt him with the ghost of a dead snake oil salesman. And the other bit where it turns out he had like a Chinese information network, where it turns out that the Chinese populace of San Francisco, which was hugely prevalent at the time because of the gold rush and other things. I loved the idea that he actually did have this amazing, fantastical life that was already fantastical, but then there were even more elements of fantasy woven into it. And then the other one is uh, the Parliament of Rooks. It's the story with Cain and Abel and Eve. You know, the Parliament of Rooks hits me in a personal way because the bit where Abel tells the story about him and Cain and it's what this person who, who just idolized his brother wanted from their relationship, even though they do have their own strange, in certain ways, loving relationship, but also Cain murders Abel on a regular basis throughout the series. And it made me think about how I stopped talking to my brother a number of years ago, but I still think about him a lot. And I wish that things were different between us. Like I, I often wonder what things would have been like if we had wound up being slightly different people. And I construct those fantasies in my head still sometimes. But yeah. Honestly, I like this a lot better than I like <laughs> than I like the previous mm-hmm. volume because it gives me a lot more to think about. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I you know what's funny is I actually really like the story of Joshua, the Emperor of the United States. Yeah. I, I really like how they kept the narrative vague, leaving the reader wavering between believing that he really had been successful in his reign as the legitimate emperor of the US. Or if he was just some sweet old man who was really well-liked, well-respected, and generally taken care of by this town of other really eccentric people. Yeah, and it turns out the truth is a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, he did get out of out of a court thing, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, and when he died, basically, he was going to be put in a pauper's grave. And I believe, like, the Merchants Association basically paid for a really swank funeral and thousands of people came mm. to the viewing like you know but thousands of people turned out for him oh, I'm, I'm gonna research this it's so sweet yeah yeah i thought it was really wholesome that he was just so content to have the title of emperor he didn't have some weird power trip about colonizing or being otherwise oppressive i would say that that was genuinely refreshing to see him just so content to be valued and validated Oh shit, that's all I want. That's all any of us want. <laughs> also, I like that he hung out with Mark Twain in the story. And I don't know if he and Mark Twain were friends in real life, but Mark Twain was a reporter in San Francisco after he got run out of the state of Nevada. Maybe I'll have to specifically look that up. <laughs> well, did you have a favorite art moment in this volume? I had two. I really liked the art of The Hunt, which is the story of the grandfather, because it felt really like it felt really scratchy and it kind of reminded me of those old European crosshatched wood prints. And then that actually makes sense. Cause I realized it was inked by this guy named Vince Locke. And he's this guy who he actually illustrated a bunch of tabletop role-playing games for white wolf games in the 1990s. And then he also created the comic that the movie, a history of violence was based off of. If you remember that movie. I do. 
But it, like, I always really liked his style. Like, I thought it was really cool and really unique. He's done a lot of other cool stuff as well. He had a comic series called Dead World. That was a zombie apocalypse kind of comic, if I remember right. Well before The Walking Dead ever came along, like, you know, 30 years. And then there's the whole issue of Ramadan, which is the story set in Baghdad. So Ramadan was illustrated by P. Craig Russell, and Russell was a the first openly gay comic creator. And he's still working today in his art style. It's just, it's one of the most fucking beautiful things you'll ever see. And it's really adaptable into a bunch of different settings. Like he did a really cool series for DC called Robin 3000, which is kind of like a weird blend of those old Tom Swift sci-fi stories, but set in this weird extreme far future where Batman and Robin are still a thing. And it's got that whole retro futurism vibe to it. It's great. Nice. But it's funny because when I was reading the story, I realized that a year later, he had done illustrations in the same style for a comic that we've talked about in the past called X from Dark Horse Comics, Mm -hmm. where he provides this fantasy scenario that kids are basically being brainwashed with a very fantasized version of like that, uh, oh, like it's, you know, it's like that extreme Muslim terrorist fantasy of like, oh, well, they're promised you know, a heaven full of virgins or whatever. And he did a stylized version of that, which it sounds gross and tactless. It's actually, it works really well in the narrative because it does. But yeah, I, but I showed you those, I, I, I sent <laughs> screenshots over because I was like, oh, this is funny. I wonder if, if his issue of Ramadan, which came out a year earlier, was the reason that this got published. Yeah. And I, I actually had to look at, I was looking at what you sent me trying to figure out if it was also in right. what we were reading. Yeah. Because it did have a very, very similar vibe to everything that's going on with this this series. Well, Russell's style is it's very unique and it's really identifiable. And he has worked on some of the coolest stuff. Like he illustrated what is widely considered to be the first interracial kiss in mainstream comics as well from the 70s. He's he's really cool. And if you're looking for some cool stuff to read, check him out he has worked with neil gaiman on several things as well if i remember right nice so anyway that is the the long-winded way of saying that i loved a lot of the art in this volume (laughs) like how about you like what i'm curious about is because you liked the emperor norton story i'm wondering if you liked the same things that i did well what's funny is i actually liked the difference in how abel's story was drawn just abel's story in particular it was Done in this cute little anime style of drawing that was completely unique so far to the series. It was chibi style. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I just thought it was so refreshing. It was just such a a surprise to see that kind of illustration when you're seeing all of this other kind of heavy fantasy different style. Yeah. So I thought that was really cute. And it was such a small section, but I really... I admired the creativity of making the animation of the story match the cheery note of how Abel was trying to spin the tale into something positive and maybe trying just a bit too hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a kid friendly story for a child that he's talking to, um, Mm -hmm. which like at that point in time, like has contrasted very much with Eve's story and Kane's story talking about the parliament of rooks or whatever, which are Mm -hmm. both a little bit darker. Yeah. Exactly. Well, what do you say we wrap up this and mosey on to our final topic of the evening? Yeah, final okay. topic of the episode. Yeah, I think this, yeah. this sounds fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on to our brain wrinkles, which is 
the one thing comics or comics adjacent that is just stuck within the recesses of the wrinkles of your brain? Mike, what is it? What's there? So this week or this past week, I was watching the latest episode of What If and my stepson suddenly got interested. And so we went back and we started to watch through all of the What If episodes from the first one on. And that led to him getting very interested. I should preface this by saying he is scary smart for an 11-year-old and he loves watching videos about theoretical physics and mechanical engineering and all sorts of stuff like that. I don't know what he's going to do in life, but it's I I suspect he is going to do something that requires a lot more intellect than what I've got. And so he got really interested in the multiverse. And then he had questions about the multiverse and how that came about. So I was telling him about Loki. And then we've started to watch that, which have led to conversations about string theory and quantum physics and other things like that. And the theory of time being cyclical. And he suddenly has gotten interested in superheroes, which is not something that he's been interested in before. And it's a lot of fun for me to sit and talk with him about it while also trying to sound smart to an 11-year-old, which is <laughs> a new experience. Um, but yeah, it, um, it's one of those things where I keep thinking about how when I was growing up, people really were very dismissive of comics. And even until now, like I remember I would have dates with people where when they heard that I read comic books, they would make very shitty comments about it. But yeah, it just it's one of those things where these days comics are not just for kids and they can lead you down a number of paths. You have a multiverse of choices, if <laughs> if you will. So on a related note, the podcast Dear Watchers is a really wonderful show that focuses on different what-if comics from across Marvel's history. And if the multiverse gets your engine going, you should check that out. Nice. So it's just it's something that I'm thinking about um, and how, how silly comic books uh, have helped me bond with my stepson a little bit more. That's yeah. so sweet. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> what about you? What, what can't you let go of? Well, we're really going to end this thing on a downer because apparently we're running out of paper to make comic books. I'm so depressed. Like, as in like... Just the world. Oh, man. <laughs> well. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's difficult to get paper right now. I think from what I've read an article or two about it, all the paper companies are like sold out, like oversold through 2022 at this point. So is this a supply issue? Is this like a logistics thing? Is this? It's, I think it's a little bit of a lot of things because they're also having supply issues with not being able to get freight. I mean, that's, that's partially due to COVID. That's also the longstanding ripple effect from the Suez Canal. Mm -hmm. Yep. Like you and I have had trouble getting bags and boards for our comics. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And actually that is another one of the things that they're having trouble getting is the boards, obviously. That was one of the things they'd mentioned. So yeah, it's just, it's rough right now. Everything is terrible. <laughs> and I have a hard time reading comics on a screen. I really like that it's an option. Yeah. My eyes get really tired. And quite frankly, I'm on a screen all day for my real big girl job. Like I don't, 
I don't need to be sitting reading a screen for my other pastimes. Extremely relatable. Yeah. So that's that's me, just that everything's awful. Everything is terrible, Still. and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that being said, thank you all for being here. We really appreciate you listening. Uh, we'll see you again in two weeks. Mike will be hosting some mystery something or other. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, actually, the episode after this, I'm really excited about because I believe that is going to be our, uh, I believe that's going to be our comic book couples counseling episode. It is. I think you're right about that. I was trying yeah. to remember what order we were doing things in, but yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah. We're recording everything so out of order, they, but yeah, it's, no, I'm. We are, we are. I'm really excited about that because um, I'm just going to say I'm really excited about it. I don't want to spoil it yet. Yeah. No, they're an amazing podcast. If you want to go listen to them, comic book couples counseling, it's they're they're great. I love them. Yeah. So that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, in that case, we'll see you in two weeks, everyone. Yeah. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to Ten Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Jessica Frazier, and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald, and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who goes by Look Mom Draws on Instagram. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is TencentTakes. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica has a K in it. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there and support your local comic shop. Thank you.